Well, good morning, everybody. I am really glad that you're here. I hope that you've had a good week. We have had a busy week, but a good one as we're preparing for summer retreat. Uh, so hopefully you guys are excited about that and are starting to get packed or maybe have thought, ooh, I should probably start thinking about getting packed. Uh, we leave Tuesday morning. So for those of you who are not able to join us this week, uh, we will miss you and do ask that you'd pray for us. Uh, pray for safe travels, pray for Matt Dellinger, our camp speaker, that he would preach with clarity and with authority. Pray for our small group leaders, for our students, that we would come to know Jesus uh, more clearly and love him more dearly. There are so many things you can pray for. We just encourage you to do that. And if you are going to camp, you join us in praying as well for a great week at camp. There's a lot that goes on into it. Um, a lot of moving parts, a lot of volunteer hours that have gone into preparation as well as execution. So we know that we are in desperate need of the Lord's help for camp. We're excited. We're excited. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We have graduated from James 1 and are moving into the second chapter of his letter to uh, the believers dispersed around uh, the known world. Um, I mentioned that we're going to be going to summer retreat this week, and, and this week in summer retreat, we're going to be all about the book of Philippians. So we're going to be studying straight through the book of Philippians. So in the next day or two, if you want to spend some time there, that would be really profitable, I think, and helpful for you. But in the providence of God, we are in James 2, 1 through 13, and I think uh, in his kindness, he has allowed us to have a great text in James as we prepare to go to camp. Last week, we talked about being hearers and doers of the word, right? So if we only hear the word but are not affected and transformed by and obedient to it, then James says that our hearing of the word is useless. It doesn't profit anyone. And James then gives us an example of pure and undefiled religion there at the end of chapter 1 uh, to look after the widows and the orphans and their affliction and to be unstained from the world. So to look after the lowly and to pursue holiness. That's what the Christian faith looks like day in and day out. Now today, James continues his charge to the believers and to us by calling on us to kill or to mortify, if you want an old fancy term, the sin of partiality and favoritism. So the title of the message this morning is, is confronting favoritism, confronting favoritism. We have a lot to cover, including what that means, so I want to give you time to discuss as well. So let's, let's read our first section, and we'll dive right in. We'll start in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll go through verse 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? All right, let's pray before we go any further. Oh Lord God, we love you and we thank you for this morning. We thank you for another day to experience your blessings, to understand your truth, to live in light of your grace. And Lord, I pray for these students, these leaders, for myself especially, as we think about this passage of Scripture, Lord, would you speak to us as we read your word? Would you mold us and shape us into the image of the Lord Jesus? Would you fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit so that we might live holy lives? And as we think this morning about the sin of favoritism and partiality, would you help us to be honest in our own hearts about how we approach others? And would you allow us, by your grace, to surrender our own lives in light of who you are and what you have done? Father, you have been kind through your son Jesus to show us great mercy. We pray that we might live lives of mercy as well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so James begins this section with a calling out to these believers as his siblings in the faith. And he does this over and over again, and I want you to get it because this repetition is important. He keeps on calling these people his brothers, or his brothers and sisters, his beloved brothers, his siblings in the faith. He is writing to believers on how they ought to live. So what that means is, is that if you call yourself a believer, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then James is writing to you. What he's about to say is not something that you're exempt from or, hey, this is probably a thing that you dealt with before you became a Christian, but now you don't have to worry about it. No, his audience is Christians. So we should listen in to what he has to say. And he says that these beloved brothers are to show no partiality, or favoritism as they hold the faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory. So if they hold the faith of Jesus, they cannot hold partiality and favoritism. These two things are not compatible, James says. Now, what does he mean by this? What is favoritism? Or what is partiality? There's a lot of ways we can slice this up, but, but I think what he means is maybe a good way of defining this is that he means that sometimes we give or withhold honor and respect purely based on externals. Purely based on externals. So when we show favoritism to a person, we look at them and maybe not really know them, but we think, ooh, based on what that person looks like, here are the kinds of things that I can get from them. Or here are the kinds of things that they can give. Here are the kinds of things that they can do. And so I'm going to show favor. I'm going to pay extra attention, maybe to the neglect of other people around me, and cater to who these people are according to what I'm just seeing with my eyes because I have hope that this kind of person is going to give me something that I want. And the opposite is also true. If there's somebody who comes in who doesn't seem like they can really give me much of anything, then I'm going to withhold a kind of honor or favor or respect from them 
Because on the outside, when I look with my eyes and see them in the condition that they're in, they don't seem very useful to me. So why do I need to pay attention to them? James gives this example. A wealthy man comes to a church service, well-dressed, clearly influential. And a poor man comes into the same service, ragged, shabby. Based on the context of this passage, neither of these two guests are believers. They're guests coming in to see what's going on at this assembly. James says, if the church treats these guests differently based purely on their appearance of power or weakness, wealth or poverty, influence or lack of influence, then they would be showing favoritism. If they paid attention to the rich man over the poor man, look at verse 4. James says, they have made distinctions among themselves and have become judges with evil thoughts. Now, what's going on here? James is saying that people in the church, you and me, all of us, are tempted to make judgments about people according to the ways of the world rather than the ways of faith. We make judgments about people around us based on the the grading scale of the world rather than the grading scale of God's word. So we ask, what can this person give to me? What can we get from this person? And so people as individuals or small groups of people or even whole churches and congregations will show favor and cater to certain kinds of people over against others. But don't miss the clarity of James's point. Favoritism, partiality is evil. It's evil. He says you've become judges who judge with evil thoughts and pandering to one person over others based on the world's judgments, the world's ideas of what is good and bad, right and wrong, helpful and unhelpful. That leads to not just distinctions among yourselves, but ultimately divisions within the body. Because this group of people might think, well, we need to cater to this guy because he's really rich and really powerful in our community. And so we should do this. But there's another group of people who say, no, 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 we should actually show favor to this group of people because they have this thing going on and this kind of reach in the community. And if we could just reach them as opposed to all other people, then we'll be doing great for ourselves. Well, now we're starting to show favor to different kinds of people and it's gonna create factions in the body. Verses one through four lay out this problem. And before we say that we are not guilty of this kind of stark, clear evil, according to James, just think for a moment about the way that you live among the people in this room. We have all the time in the world for some and no time for others. We think in the ways of the world more often than we are comfortable to admit. We jockey for position with those we think can give us something we want, like influence or comfort or pleasure or prestige or knowledge or fun 
or something else. This is the foundation. This sinful desire and temperament is the foundation for the existence of cliques. This is why those things exist. This is why certain people are excluded from groups. Because we're looking at a person based on their externals, based on the outside. We don't really want to care to get to know them. It's far easier to just look them up and down and say, you don't fit in with us. You don't really belong here as though we should not ever consider maybe that means we ought to encourage them and show them how to belong. My concern is not only that this exists, but that we don't even, we don't even see it at times. We, we don't even stop to consider how our state as a teenager in our culture or a teenager in our church, how that might affect the way we think about interacting with other people and relating to other people. We're so convinced that what's most important for me in this hour, at this time, at this day, is who is around me? Who is speaking to me? Who is enjoying their time with me? Instead of saying, how can I live my life in such a way that the people around me know that they are loved, that they are cared for, that they're encouraged? You see that flip of we're either going to think about the world according to us or we're going to say, God, how can I look at the world how you see it? This is the foundation of cliques. Judgments based on externals lead to division, and it is evil, James says. It's evil. That a person could come around us and live and move and have their being among a group of people who all claim to follow Christ and yet feel alone is evil, James says. Now, I'm not saying that there are people who don't go around and just are constantly frustrated at the world and want the world to cater to them and are upset if not every little thing happens according to the way they want it to happen. That's a different kind of sermon for a different kind of sin. But the fact remains that there's a problem that exists, and it's not just here. It's not like I'm trying to get on to you. I'm saying this exists in the church or else James wouldn't write it. That you and I must consider this problem. That left to ourselves and our own perceptions, we will start to value the people around us according to what they can give or do for us rather than recognizing that they are made in God's image, that they are worthy of love and honor and respect. And in the Lord's grace, he has seen fit to put them in front of you for reasons you may not know until eternity. 
And verses five through seven remind us that God is often on the side of the lowly and the poor and the destitute and those who do not have much to offer at all. And he is often against the rich and the powerful and the influential and those who seek to be catered to. And we often show favoritism in ways that dishonor the ones that God loves and honor the ones whom God is opposed to. That doesn't mean that the rich cannot become followers of Jesus or that all poor and lowly people are going to heaven. James is not making this blanket law, but he's showing you a pattern that both historically and globally remains true. The church is a church full of people who have not much to offer the world, except the gospel. Like, except the one thing that they need most. The pattern is that the rich and the powerful often fail to see their need for a savior and the poor and the lowly are exalted by the Lord's grace. And that is counter to the ways of the world. Paul says something very similar. Again, one of the things we mentioned a few weeks ago is that some get a little bent out of shape and think that James is saying things differently from Paul. But listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So favoritism is a great evil. But we keep going because we need to see why favoritism is evil. It's evil because it breaks the law of God. So look at verse 8 with me. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The second idea that James gives for us is this. The law exposes a great need. If partiality is a great evil, the law exposes a great need. James connects favoritism and partiality here to the second part of the great commandment. So when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He gave a two-part answer, right? He said, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So James is telling us that favoritism is a failure to love our neighbor. We sin, therefore, when we show favoritism and partiality, and we are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And it's bad news because this isn't some small law we're breaking. It's not some lenient, unrighteous lawgiver either. It's not like going 57 in the 55 out in the county where no one sees and no one cares. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now, now what does this not mean? It does not mean that if you sin in one way, it is as if you have sinned in all ways. Okay? All sin is not equal in every way. Surely our sins bring about the wrath of God. But just listen to John chapter 19. Jesus is giving an example of uh, people who have done certain things. He's talking about being delivered up to be crucified. Listen to what he says. Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The greater sin. So what this text in James is telling us is not that all sin is equal in every kind of way and whether you uh, are mean to a little kid on the playground or you murder someone, that's exactly the same. That's not what James is saying. And it doesn't mean that all punishment in this life or the next is the same as well. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus again is teaching and he's calling out to these historic cities of great sin and comparing them to the cities now who have seen Jesus in the flesh. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So when James is saying you're guilty of all of the law, he doesn't mean whether you've done a little thing or a great thing, your punishment will be the same, or whether you've done a little thing or a big thing, that thing is the same. Nor is he saying, well, if that's the case, then we should just sin as much as we want. Because if I've sinned once, it's as if I've sinned a million times. And I can just do what I want and live however I want, and if I'm already going to be condemned, I might as well have fun while I'm doing it. That is not what he's saying at all. By no means. What he means is that favoritism is serious. It means that this command comes from the same God who forbids murder and adultery. It means, as Sam Albury says, once a law is broken, the law is broken. It's kind of like if I was playing catch with my son and he had a baseball, which I don't know why we would give Abe a whole baseball, and he throws the baseball and it breaks the bottom corner of one of our windows. And I say, oh, buddy, the, the window is broken. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Like, it's just this little corner piece. 
Like, look at how much not broken window there is. No, like, we get the point. Like, once that glass has been shattered, the whole thing is ruined. Like, we have to replace the whole thing. It would be silly for my son to say, oh, but it's just like the, it's like this one ball piece. Like, it's not just that piece that's broken, not the whole thing. We do the same thing with our sin. We, we do the same thing before the law. We say, like, I've only done these things. I haven't really, like, broken the law. I've just, like, done little bad things. But they're not even that bad. No, once you have broken a law, you have broken the law, all of it. You and I cannot break the moral law of God apart We don't get to decide what to follow and obey and what is unimportant. And you don't get to decide the parameters as to whether or not you will obey any of these laws. Some of us might think, well, I don't have to love that girl because she's been mean to me for years. There's not an asterisk in here about whether or not you are to love someone. Now, how that might look might look different, but the command remains. And notice, James in verse 11 connects the law of God to God's character himself. The same one, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. It is he who said, you shall not murder or commit adultery or show favoritism. And you and I know that God is one. He is unchanging. And the moral law, this law that we've received from God, is a reflection of his character and his nature to us. Why do we not murder? Because God is the God of the living. And because the power and authority to give and take life belongs to him alone. So we see in that law, do not murder the character of God. Why do we not commit adultery? Because God is a God who is faithful. And he always keeps his word. He's always faithful to those whom he loves. He's always faithful to the covenants that he makes. So when we commit adultery, we say something that's untrue about God. So then why don't we show favoritism? And why don't we show partiality? Because God sees us not according to our externals, not according to the things, according to the world standards. He sees us for who we really are. And he knows us and he loves us. And when we show partiality and favoritism to other people, we are saying something untrue about who God is and what he is like. To say that one of the commands, one author says it like this, to say that one of the commands does not apply to me is to say that there is some aspect of the nature of God which does not matter. The law of God reveals the character of God. So this passage in our favoritism of some people over others reveals our great, great need. We have broken God's law. And even as believers, we fall prey to distortions of our hearts that kind of long for and clamor for the wrong things. We think that what we want is what's going to make us happy. We think that these relationships or the lack of those relationships with those people we don't really care about is going to make us happy, and it doesn't work. So verses 12 and 13 offer a correction for us. James says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Remember God's law. Remember the seriousness of the law. But remember that that law of liberty is called the law of liberty because it leads you really to freedom. And it has been fulfilled in Christ. More on that in just a bit. 
Verse 13 is like a reverse beatitude. Remember, Jesus gave on his Sermon on the Mount this, uh, these series of beatitudes, these, these statements about what it means to live a blessed life and what kind of person would live a blessed life. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that James is heavily influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout James's writing, you'll see just straight uh, clones of beatitudes or variations. And here we see a variation on Matthew 5, 7. So Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. So that's the positive version of that. James gives us the negative. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. If you and I show no mercy in our worldly judgments of others, which is unrighteous, then the judge will be merciless in his righteous judgments. I'm going to say that again. If you show no mercy in your worldly unrighteous judgments about others around you, then the judge will be merciless in his righteous judgment of you. We have a great need. But the end of verse 13 leads us to the end, to the hope, to the gospel, and to the third part, Jesus shows great mercy. Jesus shows great mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus, the Lord of glory, himself was overlooked and poor and maligned in his earthly ministry as a teacher from Galilee. His name was dishonored by the rich and the powerful, but his outward appearance, we know, was not the whole story because the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And this Jesus always saw people for who they were, those who were needy, those who were proud, and yet he always loved his neighbor as himself. He did not show partiality, and the ones who did hated it. See, he eats with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. He's like a drunkard among them. Look at him. They cannot make sense of the idea that Jesus might move towards people because he loves them rather than move toward them because of what they can give him. He fulfilled the royal law, the law of liberty. He identified often with the lowly and to those who deserved judgment, he offers mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. One writer says it like this. He said, the Lord Jesus taught that it is the merciful who obtain mercy. Even before the judgment seat, mercy wins the day. Judgment looks at what we deserve, mercy at what we need. And God himself looks at the cross of his son. We have a great need before the judgment of God. Our sin must be dealt with. Our favoritism must be dismantled and destroyed. But Jesus offers himself as a great savior with great mercy because God is just 
and he is rich in mercy. So remember who James is talking to. He's talking to his brothers. He's talking to the beloved. He's talking to those who have already put their faith in Christ. So if you are a believer, don't tune out because what you need to hear is what James is saying to you. And that is, remember the gospel. Jesus provided and provides the answer to our great need, both as sinners who needed to be saved and as believers growing in our faith. Jesus is the way that we kill favoritism. Instead of looking at the externals of other people around us for contentment or for pleasure or for influence or for anything else, we look at the life and example and mercy of Jesus. We behold the Lord of glory. And as we continue out our summer together, and as many of us prepare to go to camp, I pray that Jesus and his gospel, his offer of mercy, serves as a great motivator to put favoritism to death and instead love one another well. To take advantage of the days ahead as we grow together in grace. Do not squander the opportunity that we have, both today in the few minutes that we have together, this week, as we spend intense time together under God's word and in worship and in fellowship and in the weeks to come as we look forward to a new school year, a new opportunity for us to to kind of reset our minds on how we want to live in light of God's truth.